Welcome to Spinning Out. I'm your host, Josh Robbins. This is a podcast where we talk to guests about their favorite albums. Today, we're talking with Keegan Bradford of the band Camp Trash. We talked about Lorenz's 2003 underrated classic, The Meadowlands. We also talk about doing things the wrong way, on purpose, and the importance of rituals. We talked with Kevin and the Wrens back on episode 81, so check that out. It definitely provides a different glimpse into the band than Keegan and I give. Also, Camp Trash just released their debut album, The Long Way, The Slow Way, on Count Your Lucky Stars Records, so check that out wherever you stream music. If you like what we do on the main feed, then please check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. My co-host Sarah and I, we talk about records we liked a lot when we were younger and revisit them as much older and jaded individuals. Subscribe for as little as $1 a month and get an exclusive episode every week. It sincerely helps. You wouldn't believe the cost of hosting and all of the kind of costs that go into putting a podcast together. So we sincerely appreciate any support. Before we get to the episode, as you know in the world today, just please check out your local abortion access funds. I would sincerely recommend donationsforabortion.com. I will tell you what abortion access funds are in your area, and that would be the best place to start. So once again, donations, the number four, abortion.com. So please support. Okay, no more delays. Let's chat with Keegan. Hey, Keegan, how's it going? Good, how are you doing? Good. So today we are talking about The Wrens' third and final album, The Meadowlands, from 2003. And what I'll ask is, when was the first time you heard this record or this band? I was probably, I think, 15 or 16 um, when I first heard the band. I'm trying to put together exactly when it was because I know I listened to it more as I got older, um, but it was definitely when I was in high school. I had been homeschooled up until I started high school freshman year and had, uh, so I was like a child of the internet primarily. Like the way I could access culture and like get to know what was happening was primarily being online. And so sometime when I was about 13 or 14, I got obsessed with reading music reviews, reading those lists of like a hundred albums you should hear before you die or whatever, just trying to uh, listen to as much music as humanly possible. Cause I was just so interested in what was out there. I had, uh, this is like pre streaming services. So I had, when I was a teenager, I had a subscription to a site called eMusic where you'd pay 10 bucks a month mm. and you could download 40 songs. Um, so I spent all month cause I like to listen to whole albums. So I spent all month planning what albums I could get that would add up to exactly 40 songs. And, um, yeah. The Meadowlands was a record that by that time in the late aughts was already kind of being talked about as like a, a cult classic mm-hmm. just because of the buildup to it had been so lengthy. It had been like in the works for over a decade or something. And so even though it right now I think is culturally more significant than it was then, it still had this reputation of being like this long awaited kind of cult classic. And so I got it then, um, or downloaded it or stole it or whatever I did and liked it 
like the song Happy a lot, the first song off the, the first proper song off the album. But it wasn't, I think it was in college that I started listening to it a lot. I would have these long drives from Virginia back to Florida. And so I would just put a bunch of albums on my iPod every time and try and uh, get through a bunch of music I hadn't heard or hadn't paid attention to before. And so I was listening to, like probably my freshman year of college, I was listening to the Meadowlands pretty much endlessly as I would drive up and down. Um, it's a really good driving album. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lengthy record. I feel like I make a comment about uh, album lengths every episode. <laughs> Uh, but it's not one that feels like it's like I when I listen to it I don't feel like there's like anything I would technically cut it feels like a complete piece like it doesn't even though there's like very different songwriters in the band like it all feels cohesive in a way you know uh, but yeah I'm thinking back to the first time I heard this band or I feel like I remember the name of the band longer than I ever listened mm -hmm. to them because there was a point where, and he might still live in Charlotte, where this guy he was like, "Oh, I want to have I want to have lunch with you and talk about your band, still the band that I'm in now." Um, and he was like telling us, telling me like how he thought we sounded like the Wrens, and I'm like, "Okay, cool. I don't know who that is." So you know, um, and then now with actually doing the research, I realize that he's a guy that wrote extensively about this album like he's like cited for it um he so pop matters uh john garrett is his name and he's the guy that i had lunch with super nice dude you know older than me and so i don't know he has like a family we didn't really keep in touch but that's kind of like where it started and i don't think i didn't even listen to him really after that point i was just like thanks you know <laughs> and then just went on with my my life and i don't really think that i really dove into the Rins other than just like hearing it on Spotify playlist and it popping up and like who's this band and I felt like I liked what I heard and uh but until actually I did the interview with Kevin uh pretty recently <laughs> you know so I listened to Meadowlands a bunch and then so when you were like oh Meadowlands I was like cool I've already <laughs> been listening to it from Kevin so I'm gonna listen to it more because I like it so, uh, you know, so that's my entry into the Wrens and it's pretty recently, you know? So, yeah, I don't, I don't know what, but I'm, what I'm saying is like, I don't know why I didn't listen to it recently, you know, before then, because it's like, I listen to things that feel like in the orbit, like if you have a Spotify pl curated playlist and you're listening to Sebado, the Wrens might be next. Right. Yeah. yeah. The Wrens are yeah. like adjacent to everything. And so they get brought up a lot and they get put into a lot of those playlists but I think that like it just comes from them being not as much of anything like th there's less of an obvious hook to hang your hat on. Like if you're listening to the Jesus lizard, you're like, you're looking, you're looking for one thing. You're looking for that, like that bass tone, that kind of like aggressive mm -hmm. in your face thing. If you're listening to the microphones, what you're looking for is someone very frail to be whispering about the woods like you have like a thing yeah. that like is an obvious thing. The band has like a pavements, the slackers, um, the smashing pumpkins of the assholes built the spill or the guitar gods. And like, everybody has like a hook. And when you're a kid or like when you're younger and you're categorizing these bands into these places and you're like, okay, this is indie rock. This is punk rock. This is um, discord records. This is merge records. The Wrens don't really have like a thing. They have, 
two primary songwriters, but three singers. They all sound enough alike that you'd be forgiven for thinking there was just one dude who sang high and low. And they recorded at home. So there's like nothing. The recording is not immediately arresting. I think the recording is astounding. Yeah. I think the recording is one of the great, on the metal end is one of the great achievements of recording period, but it's, it's not dramatic. It's not, it doesn't jump out at you. There's just this like winding nest of guitars and like clipped drums and sampled things that nothing feels like it jumps out at you. You sort of have to like sink into it and just sit with it. Yeah. There's even like when the record starts, I feel like the way that they kind of pan guitars and then clip them before it's really done it like normally the the thought would be to let it sustain so it feels kind of more natural but it's just like it's like if you edited an audio clip just too early yeah you know but but it's but it's very interesting and i'm like the because it's like how much they labored over this record from like i they said that it says online that they started writing it around 99 yeah i would assume even probably earlier than that and it's like the record came out in 2003 and so you know i don't know five years basically and it's just interesting I, talking with kevin and kind of like thinking about this record and then thinking about well the record that doesn't exist that should i guess should have existed that existed for someone right you know the the record after this you know and how much longer that sat around like it, i believe they submitted it in 2013 which would have been their fourth record and then Char charles uh, Bissell, I believe his mm -hmm. name is, he like took the album back. And then that kind of led us to the next seven years. And then we got Eon Station. Yep. You know? So, so very interesting like story that's like, I tried to get it some from Kevin, but it's like he, he was, he was very polite in how he brought up everything. And I think it's like, you know, they were a band that were formed in 1989. And so online, I'll say they broke up in 2021. But in Kevin's head, they're like still together. <laughs> you know, the way he talked about it was kind of like, oh, he'll come back around. <laughs> we'll, we'll perform again one day, you know. Uh, but I don't, I don't know if you would hear a different story if you talk to, you know, the other singer, mm -hmm. Charles. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that maybe you've mentioned this in a group chat that we're all in, um, a secret chat. Um, but so I've heard that basically the band broke up because they couldn't, they could oh, wait, do you know the story behind like what led to their breakup? The version that I have heard is essentially Charles wouldn't fit. So, um, Charles and Kevin both like write their songs sort of independently and then bring them to the band. And the way the new record was shaping up, it was going to be like, I think really half and half, like five or six songs from each of them. And they were going to put them together mm -hmm. into the Renz record, which is not too, too different from how they record Renz records before. Um, and they essentially, Kevin had his songs done for like years. And Charles just kept saying yeah. he was going to get, them he was going to do he was going to get the songs done but he was just reworking them and he's a noted 
perfectionist, but like not like a perfectionist, like it has to be perfect. A perfectionist, like it has to, um, I have to hear it and just know that that's it. There's like an interview they did, like an oral history they did with Stereo Gum, which is super, super good about the Meadowlands. And he was like, if the rule was, and this like shot us in the foot, was if anybody said, is this it? Is this right? Then we knew it wasn't right. Like we had to know, like when you play it, that it felt like, like the, the white album or something like where you heard it and you were just like, yes, this is it. This is like, I know this is it. I don't have any questions about if this is it or not. Um, so he's always like kind of chasing this feeling of creative thing, creating a thing. And that's all through the metal lands. Like he became obsessed with these like drum takes that were not like the, the drums in happy are like the original drums, I think. And they're not like to a click. They're not synced correctly. So everything else in the song has to kind of follow the drums as they sort of change tempo. And there's a couple other songs where this happened, where they had the original, uh, I want to say it was, you know, I should have the track listing open here because when I downloaded this album from LimeWire in 2008 or whatever, all the songs were titled incorrectly. And so in my head, Hmm. all these songs have different titles when I listen to it. It was um, Boys You Won't was a song that they had essentially redone entirely except for the original drums. So they were like really in pursuit of like the energy of something that they found the first time around or when writing it. And there's a ton of scratch guitar tracks. Like uh, uh, for people who don't like, haven't like spent time recording music or whatever, typically what you do is you like record the whole song through on guitar and you're going to throw that out. Like that's not the guitar you're going to keep. That is just like, the track you can use for everybody to play along to so that you can all stay together and like just follow the song along. So the drummer has some idea what's happening or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's just the scratch track that you throw out at the end. Um, And then record your actual guitars once everybody's together, but he would like keep the scratch tracks and he would try and re-record them thousands of times. And when it wasn't right, he would go back to the original scratch track and put that in and try and like run that back through some processing to make it sound different. And it's like, he's just look. he doesn't know what he's looking, Charles doesn't know what he's looking for, but he knows that like, once he finds it, he'll know exactly what it is. And it could just take him trying every single thing on earth only to go back to that original, like demo guitar, essentially. Yeah. And I mean, we don't have any way of knowing since this is the version that right. exists, but it's like, when I think about those things and I'm, you know, I've been in bands that have taken way too long to like put music out and finish songs. Like, so I get it. But at some point it just feels like you have to just move on. Yeah. You know, it's just like, how good could any one guitar part be that would change the course of your life? Yeah. And you'll, especially when you like work with a producer or anyone who's recorded music at all, all the time they'll be like, okay, this doesn't matter. Like what, what we're working for. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't. No one's going to hear it. No one's going to care you might think you can hear it, but you can't really. Um, yeah. And the difference is, I think that like, I think there are some people who make stuff who are really, really convinced that if you care about all these things down to the very last, like little scrape, um, on the guitar strings, or the last little 
missed stick hit or whatever it is. You care about all these things and follow them all the way down and, tr- and make everything intentional and like what you want it to be that somehow the end result will be an album that is different. That feels massive. That feels like powerful and like a one whole piece that you can't really explain the power of it, but you hear it and you just hear like, like a, like a, one of the good Neil Young albums where it just feels like kind of timeless and historic. Um, and I think that, I don't know if it actually is true or it, it can matter in this case, but I mean, the Meadowlands is such a specific thing that couldn't be, it couldn't work if the guitars were different. It couldn't work if it was just like, they had just run everything through a Marshall and like, let it be the end. The album wouldn't work. Um, and so I, I guess like, Clearly that kind of neurotic focus on something stops you from being able to produce at the end. Eventually you become someone who hasn't put out any music in 15 years and has no signs of putting out music because it'll never be done. But um, I think the metal Ants took them like seven years total. And yeah, I think it's better for it. I think it's like the mark of like people that were just like trying desperately to create something that they had a, a, a loose vision of in their heads and like kind of breaking themselves on it. And I think that like that sound of like four guys sort of losing their minds and their lives kind of collapsing around this record is a, is a part of it. Like you can hear how fucking tired everybody is as they make this thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think there are certain things that I, even though I've just started kind of fully listening to this record, like I feel, feel it i think it's like being over i don't know 30 mm-hmm. you know? Uh, i usually don't state my age on the podcast but there i am uh but you know it's like things just start taking longer you mm-hmm. know <laughs> like when you get older you know it's so i i think about this story then it's like like when i was younger i felt like i would look to people that were of a certain age to kind of like use as an example of like well if i get to this point by the 25 or whatever it was then it's sort of like you can kind of compare yourself to them, you know? And then like today I watched videos of them in 2009 and uh, from South by Southwest. And it's like, I think at that point they were probably like in their early Mm forties, you know? So, so essentially like, well, for them still within the cycle of promoting this record for how long of gaps there is, I'd say a four year gap. They're still in the, the album cycle at that point. You know, and it's like, I don't even know the point that I'm getting to. It's just like, I start, I start feeling like I'm like, maybe like one, one, two different things. Maybe, maybe there's no reason why it should have taken so long. But on the other hand, why is everything kind of disposable after like one side is, is a bummer, you know? So it's like. They're kind of like, they're two different thoughts, but ultimately it's like, you know, I feel like I'll still listen to this record, like, you know, a year from now and many years from now. It's just kind of like, it, I can put it, like you said, with like Built to Spill or Sebado and all those things. I'll just file it in those, the albums that I'm always going to listen to. Yeah. You know? And, but then it's like, I don't, I don't know if I can say the same thing 
for like newer bands and i don't know if that's like an age thing you know um but it's just the only comment i'm really making is just like why are we told that essentially we have to like come up with a new album every two years you know yeah i think about it a lot like i yeah i, I know i didn't really ask a question it was always, it was my uh kind of james no, Joyce I, I, uh, attempt at yeah. asking a question i think that like the thing here is that you're listening to people like actively like it's a it's a it's a desperate album and it's a sound of like a, a, a desperation and i think what is different about the meadowlands is that there's like a million songs and albums that try and express to you hey i'm tired hey i'm worn out hey like i'm i'm not doing well i guess the the long kind of question i ask is really just about i guess disposable culture was really what we're kind of getting into um just like why things um the idea that i feel like even people were like oh that's two years old why should i care yeah it's it's so funny because like yeah there's it seems like um especially with recording, it's like, okay, you can do this well and quickly and it can sound professional and you don't need to worry about like the stuff you only you think about, only you hear. But there's something about the way that like the Wrens at the time of the Meadowlands, the band as a unit were like hoarders. Mm -hmm. They like had to collect all these scraps and pieces and bits of recording and everything they had because it might be important because it might like somehow be the piece to recording the album. And they're like a band really big on big emotional gestures like i'm not sure if it was secaucus or if it was the meadowlands but like once they finished the record and like shipped it off to the label like they deleted their copy of the masters yeah like as some symbolic gesture like we're done you can't fuck with it anymore it's over and it's like that's a stupid thing to do yeah like, yeah i read something about that and uh charles was like yeah, but we had other copies, so I feel like it's like never done for him. But but I think it right, might exactly. it was probably important. To, he might be re-recording this record, kind of like how uh, I heard the story where like Two for Grace uh, re-edited all of the Lord of the Rings movies into one movie. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like there's a you know like a, a fan <laughs> edit that recreates like a story out of a movie so it has new continuity it's like charles like does that with the wren's recordings like he takes all the pieces and spends ye like literal years like create re-editing the thing until it's a new song my one of my favorite moments of that on the album is uh in i think it's on 13 grand that comes in and there's just like this like hanging piano piece and then like a measure and a half of this drum beat from nowhere that I think is essentially drums from a song that they didn't use and then just spliced in this little bit of drums to kind of have it connect these two pieces. And I mean, it's, it's the, it's kind of using every piece, but also like the deep uncertainty of like what goes in and what doesn't go in mm -hmm. it. It's no wonder to me it took years to finish, but it truly is perplexing to me to figure out like how they know they had it or when they knew they had it. Cause there's like all kinds of like truly fucked up sounding parts that just don't feel intentional, but obviously everyone is like in, in per second second, there's like, like the 32 second mark, 
like right on top. They do this thing all the time where one guitar comes in so much louder than everything else, like way on top of the vocals. And it's like the 30 second mark. It's this really bright, jagged, chimey guitar, hard down strums like they always do. And it feels almost like a dismemberment plan demo, like like a scratch track Mm -hmm. they would have used when writing Emergency and I, a weird jagged little guitar. It comes in for six seconds and then it's gone. And then it happens like two more times in the song for four seconds each time. It's just it's just three chords of this like little guitar that sounds different than everything else in the song. It's only there as a transition into the chorus part or the pre-chorus part. And and then like two minutes and 30 seconds in, everything kind of drops out for a second and there's this noodling and it feels almost like a quiet sonic youth part. Like the guitar is kind of like meander around each other and it's much more indistinct and no wavy and it happens for 10 seconds and it's like i don't know what like how the pieces stack up and how like the jenga tower gets built and how it like amounts to anything more i think it's stupid to try and figure it out Mm -hmm. but i think it's like the record works because everybody who was involved understood that they were building something important and that the important thing was they never said that's good enough but they had to keep pushing it to like totally manic levels until they were like, no, that's, that's incredible. That's better than what we had planned for. Yeah. Yeah. It's just what I also think about with this is like for as many music writer types that I've heard talk about the Wrens, you know, and maybe I need better friends, but I don't, I genuinely don't feel like I hear a lot of people outside of music writers, people that want to write long pieces about the Wrens, Talk about the rents, you know, so. Yeah, it it also helps that there's, like, no lasting document. Like, I think it's easier with, like, something like Nutramilk Hotel because there's such a culture. There was, like, a, you know, they were a group of friends who were also an art collective, who were also sort of a cult, who were also just, like, a, a, va- a group of vagabonds who all had the same mentality and the same interest in sixties pop. And it's a really cool narrative and you get like in the airplane over the sea, which has this really iconic cover art. And this, it's like this really big statement piece that has these really weird images. And the Meadowlands is like weary. It's not like magic. It's not transcendent. It's not like rockin'. It is like, it is the sound of like four dudes stretched all the way to the edge of like being able to keep going. And I think that like, like I said earlier, there's not like a cool thing to hang your hat on with a record. Mm -hmm. I think when you're listening to it as a music fan, there isn't a part that goes like, Oh, this is like my jam. It's really hard to say on the record. There are a couple of really great transitions, like four minutes into happy when the song has kind of been like, struggling to build up steam and then everything drops out and it's just one guitar chiming along before everything Mm -hmm. comes back in that there's not even that many moments like that. It, It really is like a winding and kind of dense album. And I think that if you're putting it on, you're probably gonna listen to the whole thing. It's not like Mm -hmm. there isn't like a, I've had to recommend a song from 
the album to somebody, I wouldn't know. Yeah. Like in the airplane over the sea, you're like, okay, there's like two songs that are like the ones you'll know right away if you like the album or not. And this one, it's like, I just think you have to start at the beginning and listen to it. Um, I think there's, um, it's also, I think one of the problems is that the lyrics are almost inaudible half the time Mm -hmm. because they are one sort of like loose images a lot of the time and they're like buried under the waves of guitar. Um, I think the vocals are cool. I think they fit what's happening, but they're really backgrounded a lot of the time in order for the guitars to be like as loud and as like overwhelming as they need to be. Um, but like, I think it's funnier than people give it credit for. Yeah. Um, this boy is exhausted is not like the most weary song in the album. This boy is exhausted is kind of the most fuck you song in the album. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a really funny story about how they wrote it. And then there's an A&R who kept telling them like, this is not going to work. The songs you have aren't going to work. We need like a single, we need like more distortion. Like, you know, um, they're still coming off of like the alt rock boom. And he's like, we need something louder and with like more distorted driving guitars. And so they record this song, this boy's exhausted, essentially saying, we don't like you and we're not going to write the song you want. And they like went to his office to play it for him. <laughs> like all sitting in the room together, which is fucking insane. Yeah. And then the song finished and the A&R guy goes, I don't like you guys either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there, I mean, even with like talking with, with Kevin I mean, there was a point in indie rock, and I I feel like it doesn't exist now unless you're of the age of people like the Wrens, where indie rock felt like it was very connected to like the idea of punk. Like it's like you could yeah. feel like Kevin grew up listening to Discord, but he also liked you know classic rock or something. You know, so it's like they all kind of came from you. Know, like when you look at Supertrunk, it's like if you talk to them about any early '80s hardcore stuff. All of those type of people, like Lou Barlow included, seem to light up. But there's a point kind of after this, or maybe concurrently happening, where it's like indie rock people that grew up on indie rock but didn't connect it to punk. In the same way that it's like there's a lot of hardcore fans that don't connect it to punk. It's hardcore as its yeah. own thing. You know, so it's... I feel like I like the Rins because I feel that I can sense that the dna is connected to punk even if it's like yeah. explicitly not a punk band you know yeah i think that there's something very like husker do in here like something yeah. very uh replacements or guided by voices like stuff coming out of punk that was also very like blue collar drinking songs kind of thing yeah um and it's weird because they don't really despite the fact that I think the album is like some of the most interesting and fucked up and cool guitar composition of the era. Like there's just so many little layers of guitars, but his, his big thing was like, we're not going to add a bunch of shit to it. It's going to be like two main guitar parts. And those are the melodies and you can add whatever on top of that, but you have to at the core, keep these like two guitars as the primary element. And they don't, the rents don't really get talked about like guided by voice. I mean, I think the obvious reason is they are the exact universe's opposite to guided by voices. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even though it's like at times not crazy sonically different, you know, yeah. but 
the way that they approach songwriting yeah is completely the opposite like yeah and i i think about it really was something i thought about a lot because i would put on like the rins radio and kind of just see what popped up on you know and so you get a lot of guided by voices in it you know and so just kind of thinking about it it's almost like which one am i you know yeah am i rins or guided by voices and i feel like i'm like for as much as I've written in my life, it's like, oh shit, I think I'm Renz, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which washed up drunk am I? Yeah, I'm Renz, you know? Okay. Um, Dude, it's, but I think that, like, that also is why the Renz are, like, not maybe something that, like, attract casual fans the same way. Because, like, Guided by Voices, the narrative is, like, so it's like these guys love to drink and love to play guitar and love to rock, and that's it. And the Renz are like, do you? like when old men are sad and they weren't like old at the time yeah, yeah. but they were like too old to be doing what they were doing and they were like you know in your 30s with roommates it's like yeah it's like you feel like I, the lyrics on everyone choose sides that's like probably like the best my favorite song on the album um the guitar in the intro is completely fucking insane it is just absolutely blown out and destroyed it doesn't sound like anything um it i think that i tweeted at charles one time about it um and asked how they got the guitars so fucked up and everyone choose size and i think he threatened to put a hit on me for saying they were fucked up but he <laughs> said that they really he, i think they were plugging straight into the preamp i think they mm -hmm. were just like plugging the guitar directly into the preamp and just blowing it out and just like ruining it so that it would be so um, just massive. And you can hear that the guitars in this album are really, really tactile. I think you can feel them. They have a lot of depth and texture. I think they're much more interesting than most bands of this ilk. Like I love Guided by Voices and everything, but the guitars are there just to kind of punch through those three chords. Like that's, and, and do the leads. There's not, sonically what's happening on this album is really, really cool layers and layers of things. I was listening on like uh, like over ear headphones for the first time in a long time today, and it was crazy how much more was happening down in there than I like remember. Um, like, where is it? An ex girl ex girl collection at two and a half minutes in, suddenly just in one ear, you just hear a single guitar string being plucked over and over again, and yeah. it's like it's loud and it's just way out here and it's just one string. And it's really clean. Um, I don't remember where he talked about it, but a lot of these good, you hear these guitars in like X-Girl collection. And when the guitars come in, it feels like heavy and weighty. And it, it, you, if you listen back to it, there's no distortion on anything. Like on many of these songs, the guitar is just clean. And he's, they, they used baritone guitars for a lot of the rhythm parts to give it that like big, doomy, full body thing without putting distortion on it um it was this boy is exhausted they played it for the a and r and it was all distorted and like whatever he asked for like all fucked up and rocky and then charles was like but it wasn't right it was like we were what we were making fun of and so i i was obsessed with the idea of trying to make it as big as it was without using distortion at all and the the, the conclusion he came to was to replace the rhythm with baritone guitars so it was like big and heavy um I, the the inventiveness and the creativeness is like I think just phenomenal. Um, but when we talk about it being like a weary album or a tired album, it's not just like the song titles. 
I think that everyone choose sides is the is the song that I always think about where the the first lyric is thirteen grand a year in the Meadowlands, bored and rural poor, Lord at thirty five, right? I'm the best seventeen year old ever. And like this was like mid nineties, but thirteen grand a year was still not a salary. Yeah. And they were scraping by on, you know, you know, making money in the tens of thousands of dollars between the four of them. Yeah. And like, you know, couldn't couldn't get a record deal, couldn't capitalize on the alt rock radio success of it was Surprise Honeycomb was a single off Secaucus that was really doing well for them and they couldn't make anything work. Um relationships were failing. There there was no careers to speak of and the album was five years in the making and no one knew if it was ever going to be done. And that line, I am the best 17 year old ever is I think one of the great um, openings to a song, one of the great lyrics of all time, just being like, I'm following my dreams. And I think the only person who would think this is cool is me 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And what's funny is I feel like I had that exact conversation with Kevin where it's like when I started playing music, really music at all, like I feel like it's like I would point to certain things like let's let's say it's like Shudder to Think. And I was like, I want to start a band that sounds like Shudder to Think or I want to start a band that sounds like Hoover. You kind of already shot yourself in the foot. You know, in a way, it's like these are weird examples of like what your band could be or should be. You know, and it's like Kevin felt like that they kind of like took it from the same thing. It's like the bands that they were looking at as inspiration weren't really that successful ever any. So they kind of built their whole model off the back of that. And it's like if it worked for them, then it's going to it works for us. And also like the idea of working for somebody is just kind of staying true to your vision. And this is a band that like (laughs) to the fault of really even like, I don't know, it taking seven years to do a record. It's like they were able to remind themselves along the way of like the vision of it, you know, which is like a hard yeah. thing to do because, you know, like in the last couple of years or something, it's like, you know, we're probably all hit with like the, why am I doing this? But it's like, if I just nuked everything and started it again, I would make the same decisions because it's just who I am as a person. And I feel like that's what this record feels like. Yeah. 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 There's an inevitability to it. Like it, there's like a, there's a defeatedness, but also like a pride in that. It isn't like an album that's like, we're going to overcome the obstacles and succeed. The album is like, no, it's going to suck the whole way down, but fuck you. We're going to keep doing it. And that is, I think, what makes the Meadowlands like such a special thing. It's because it's them doing it wrong, losing time, money, years of their life, like ending relationships, ending professional relationships. And and they know at the end what they're going to have is not the breakthrough radio rock record that's going to make them any, like they're they are tunneling away at a goal that is not a goal people should strive for. Yeah. And I think that they're like, this is the only thing that we can do. And we believe that the only thing that is worth doing is if we see this thing all the way through to the end. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it 
there is a lot of that that actually kind of happened exactly that way in that the the record before was on grass records and mm-hmm. the transition it's not necessarily that grass records became wind up but somewhat you know it's like it got grass records got bought up by some business guys um i think actually a business husband and wife and that became wind up records and wind up records put out creed you know that's yeah. like one of the big ones and so they were pressured along basically it, there is a reality where the Rins could have went to wind up records, mm-hmm. you know, cause they were pressured by grass records to become like more mainstream sounding, you know, like clean it up, you know, <laughs> try and have a hit like we're talking about, you know, but yeah, it's not this band, <laughs> you know, it's just, it was yeah. never going to be this band. And that's, I, I think that there's like, there's a level where I don't get it, you know, like, it's like, if you can write songs that people like, the goal is for people to like them. Like there's not a reason to make it difficult for people to like your music. But at the same time, I think they were like, it, the record that we want to make is just not possible to make if we have to at any point on the record, be worried about how it's gonna work for you or you or you. Like the only way we know how to make this is if nothing else matters and we just finish the thing and that's, that's it. And we can't think about anything else until it's done. And I think that it is the most successful product of stupid pride I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. It's a band that just had to do it one way and had to have it come out one way and to the, you know, crippling their own success and it's a perfect thing for that reason just because they got to a weird place where it was just them and themselves and like trying to unknot this big mess of tracks and figure out what was the album they were trying to make and enough time went by and enough manic episodes went by and enough hard drinking and years and struggle went by that it became just them versus this record and nobody was there telling them what to do with it. Nobody had any idea how to help them do it. Um, I think it was Will Chef from Okaroo River, the band name. I'm always unsure of if I remember how to say yeah. it correctly. Um, was a friend of theirs. And he was like, literally everything that they did in the recording process is my worst nightmare. Like it just <laughs> shouldn't, yeah. shouldn't be done that way. Like it's, it's, it's miserable what they did. And, I think about, um, I was, was an interview with Broken Social Scene when they were doing their self-titled album after You Forgot It in People. So You Forgot It in People is their big breakthrough. Um, one of my favorite records of all time is a huge success for them in the indie rock era where Arcade Fire is coming up and there's a big boom of these kind of big indie rock groups. And so it's their follow-up. They spend years on it. And there's like, you know, there's 15 members in the band and there's a a million tracks and they, they mixed it themselves. And at one point in the interview, he said, there was one song where we had 80 tracks that I was mixing. And he said, what have we done? Like, why did we do this? Like never again will we do this. And as a musician, it helps a lot to have somebody help you filter the technical aspect of like, how do I get this out of my head and onto, onto tape? How do I get it to translate the way I want to? And, 
uh, I think Charles' big thing is like nobody else knows besides Charles. He believes deeply that he's the only one who can get it out correctly. And I think he's right. I think that the metal lands with anybody's hands at it. Name any producer. Put Jay Robbins on this. Put Will Yip on this. Any single person, past or present, you can think of would fuck this record up. Would just make it a better record. Would make it, you know, the songs translate more. The heavy parts heavier. The hooky parts more hooky. And I think it would ruin the record. I think it would break this, like, very tight line that they're walking the whole time of like this album more than any other album I can think of is about the creation of the album. And I think about that a lot. Like I think about that all the time, how you can tell that as they were writing it, it became more about the album than anything else. Yeah. It, I like being able to kind of hear the things that people left in because like you were saying with like things not being to a click, it's like, it feels like everything's, everything's to a click nowadays, you know? And it's like, there are certain times where it's like, then it just doesn't feel like there's like an emotion to it. Like things kind of falling apart serves an emotion to a song and being able to like see the strings there, you know, like, I don't know, like makes you feel like you can do it too, you know? So that's yeah. like a fun experience to kind of have with the record. One one thing I was talking about when we were talking about Charles, it kind of feels like it's like when my when my wife watches me use a computer, she's always like, "Why do you do it that way? Like, why why do you? Because I like <laughs> pull screens down. Like, there's little buttons you can push, and I can make the screen go away and stuff. But I'm like, I pull it down. I got to do a thing, put things in a desktop a certain way. And I know like Pro Tools is uh you know, but it's like. Or even when I'm recording things on GarageBand, it's like I got just got to pile track by track, and she's like, "You can just label this that way. Like, why do you do it this way?" But it's the only way you know how to do it. You know, and it's like you—it's almost like a like baseball superstition. It's like it's just the way that you've told yourself that leads to success, and so I understand it. And there's a lot of ways that that is just baseball superstition, you know. Like I play every set with the same like horrific looking guitar strap my dad gave me. It's like a white guitar strap with big black music notes on it. Uh, (laughs) He just the dumbest thing on earth that he used when he was playing in an acoustic Christian rock duo um, in the nineties. And I play every show with it and I played one show, the different strap and felt like I didn't play as well. And that's obviously not the case. It's not, at all possible that that's the case but it's cool yeah. i like having superstitions i like having things that are important to me and nobody else and make me feel like i'm doing something my way and for me like it as i do it and i think the metal is weird because i think it all mattered actually like all yeah. of their superstitions and their neuroses worked and like we're a part of the record and are audibly part of the record and it's like you can has then the weird parts in the record where the tempos are shifting against each other or the scratch track is coming in and out of the other guitar track and everything's pulling apart. You can kind of see in that moment, the strings that are connecting everything. And I think of it a lot in terms of a granddaddy record, actually. Yeah. Granddaddy's very subdued and not messy, not, not loose in the same way and not scrappy in the same way. 
but I think that each track is important in the same way. And you, I think that both the Rens and Granddaddy have this world that is their own, where if you introduce too much else into it, you kind of shatter this like obviously very difficult, very strenuous, very time intensive process of making records where it's not just about the song, but like everything sonically contributing to the song means something. And if you take it away or play it on a different instrument or do it a different way, it changes the song. Um, and having that level of like religious commitment to what you're doing, I, you know, maybe it doesn't matter, but I think there's a difference between records like software slump and the Meadowlands and records where everything's on a click. I mm-hmm. think that, yeah, I mean, I like my band, but my band sounds like on a click. We sound like we are like, I think it's cause we're not, we are not the most professional musicians we are not the best at what we do we will readily admit and i think that playing to a click is good for us it keeps the songs tight and like um it's a good way to record for us but you don't have that kind of like fluid movement and like push and pull and that kind of tension that you have on on records like the meadowlands and i think about that like that's a choice we make and is anything really lost or gained by doing it differently? I don't know, but I feel like you yeah. can hear it. Like I, I like our shit, but I don't, I don't think our shit is alive the same way the metal lands is. Yeah. I mean, the obvious kind of thing with it is like, by also trying to be, I'll, we'll say the rents since we're talking about it. If you tried to be the rents, then that wouldn't be good. So it's like, you need to right. figure, you know, you would just need to figure out what is camp trash, you know? And that's yeah. like the hard thing. It's like the Rins don't sound like anything else because of that. You know, we you can say things that they kind of sort of fit with, but there's, I can't think of like when we said like, oh, Husker Du parts and stuff, there are straight up bands that just sound exactly like Husker Du and blah, blah, right. blah, down the line. But it's like the Rins are their own thing. And I think like we were saying, like that does make it hard if you're trying to explain to someone like why to like it. How do you explain it? But also backtracking to something we were saying, like you were saying the the guitar strap thing. Um, I think I've it's the most insane thing I will ever say on the podcast, maybe. But when I was like 17 years old, I totaled my car. And um, before that, probably because I grew up in Wilmington, North Carolina, I like rarely wore my seatbelt. But right. on this one day, <clears throat> I wore my seatbelt. This is how I remember it too. And I totaled my car. So I told myself after that moment that I wasn't going to wear my seatbelt anymore because if I wore my seatbelt, I'd get in a wreck. Yeah. <laughs> and then eventually when I met my wife, I would like half and half do it. And I told her that. And she was like, that is the most, that is the most insane thing anyone's ever told me. Like, please wear your fucking seatbelt. And I did. Cause I didn't really have any real reason you know, but it, another another story like it, um, when I started kind of playing bass in a band, like uh, I kind of picked up bass a little later, but I was like, oh, I practice without my shoes on. So the only way to make this the same when I play shows is to not play with my shoes on or or I will be messing up everything that I right. practiced as. Like I would I would turn my mic in a certain way and I would play without shoes. And then eventually someone was like, 
you're playing the grossest venues in the world without shoes on. So I just started doing it. Uh, but just having those little superstitions, I know we talked about that a few minutes ago. Like I, you know, it's like I've told myself for years that I can't play with my ring on, you know, right. so I take my ring off when I play, you know, that one feels like it makes a little bit more sense, but there's not really any reason I've been playing bass for so long. Like this, I could figure it out, you know, but to kind of like have these certain reasons why you do a thing to the detriment probably of really everyone that's around. Yeah. Right. It's like these things are often not, you know, like in sports, it's like you don't wash something if you're winning mm-hmm. or whatever. Like these things are almost always the wrong thing to do. Yeah. And I think, I think that like what we love about stories like the ends is that they like, they did the wrong thing to do in every sense. Like these guitars aren't distorted. They're just playing them on a baritone guitar and playing them super loud to give the same effect. And they're, speeding up and slowing down together and he's like duplicating his own mistakes in order to not re-record the scratch track because he's superstitious about getting rid of that track so he's recording his new parts by duplicating the mistakes and like and it was and it worked and it, yeah and i mean it, it did work because when this record because it's like i feel like we've we've set up a lot of like the the kind of the failures that became the successes but when this record actually came out like it was well received you know? Yeah, no, it was and, surprisingly you know, well received. They, they yeah. were afraid that they'd waited too long. Yeah, it was like New York Times, you know, Pop Matters, like I mentioned at the top. Pitchfork gave it a 9.5, you know, and uh, Village Voice, uh, Robert Criscow, uh wrote about it, which is like a name, like if you're reading about like Rolling Stones, you can see that name. And then, you know, so it's like it got Magnet Album of the Year, you know, Enemy and stuff like that. So it's like... Yeah, everywhere. Yeah, you know, so so it was well well received. So it's like then the answer to the question is, I guess, like you were saying, this was all worth it. You know, I think a lot about like the song "Happy," like the first proper song. Um, again, every every decision about the record is so bizarre and works so well. Um, the house that guilt built, the first song, um, is first of all such a heavy, depressing title for the first song in a record. And it's the drummer singing. It's neither of the main singers. Yeah. Yeah. Jerry McDonald. And that last lyric, just, I can't believe what life's done to me is like the thesis statement of the album. And it, it's so easy to hear that and go, okay, I'm out on this. Like, I don't need to listen to these fellows be sad, but it's like, it was important to them to set up like, this is actually the point the point is that we made this record in the face of a pretty, the fact that existence is brutal. Like our existence has been rough, but I think that the album is kind of more generally about like, I think for everybody you grind and you grind and your only hope is to grind with a better pool in your backyard. Yeah. Like there, the song happy is just like everything right with the album. Like the tempos are a little bit off. It's so long. It's like four minutes of buildup, essentially. It is this repeating little cyclical three note guitar riff. Um, The drums come in super abruptly. Um, And then like right at four minutes in, there's just this, it happens in like 30 songs, 40 songs in history. Just this moment of absolute weightlessness where everything drops out 
and there's one main guitar line is there and then a fucking shaker or something. Just this one moment of like all the heavy weariness and buildup of the song just drops away and everything just floats like just like at the top of a roller, like the top of the peak of a roller coaster right before you drop. And I don't know exactly what alchemy or what magic in the album works to make that work, but it is every time I listen to it for over 15 years now, every time I hear it, it feels absolutely like impossible to believe that it's like that this moment happens every time and feels the same way every time. Um, there's a great poem that has a line in it. I come out, I walk outside and the whole world is new. This has happened all of my life. Like the little miracle of like everything. It's like a little repeated miracle. And that mm -hmm. like happy is this song that has this little repeated miracle where every time you play it, it hits exactly as hard. And I just think the joy in that moment of like everything clicking all at the same time is what like makes the highs in this record so high. Mm -hmm. I love those kind of first tracks that are kind of like you're either in or you're out, you know, that kind of like potentially the rest of the record, like might be more upbeat, not in this case, but it's like, yeah, it's just you're in or you're out. You know, like what I think about one of our peers that I feel like did this, it's like uh, the newest downhaul record. I feel like they put a, the first track is like seven minutes. You know, anyone would say like, don't put a seven minute long song on as your first track but i think that i think that's awesome when people do that i feel like more people should do that like do the wrong thing on purpose you know yeah and make the record not really about like because you know the, the common wisdom is to have like your intro track then have your singles at two and three and then you know like there's a there's a way you're supposed to sequence your album that makes it easy to listen to for people like we're used to listening to pop records. We expect the singles in certain places and everything. And then there's like, so you're arranging your album kind of to, in terms of how you think people are going to listen to it. And there's a way to arrange your album in terms of like, I need you to understand up front what I think this album is. And it's really important to me that you see the album this way before we start the whole thing together. Yeah. I think the down hall is a really brave and interesting band who I don't think people are paying enough attention to like the craft they're putting into things. I think that they're one of the few bands I can think of right now that um, are willing to put the album out there and be like, I need you to understand, like I know what this record is and I know that art is subjective. Everyone experiences things differently. You can like it or not like it, but I, I actually know what the album is and I'm going to try and show you what I've been trying to put into this album, which is, I think the same thing that happens in the Meadowlands. It's like, it's not going to be easy. It's a noisy, messy record. There's not like a part of this record that's going to be like, it's not a good background music album. It's not a good thing to like throw on while you're doing other stuff. It really requires you to play it loud to hear what's going on. It really requires you to kind of dive into it. Um, there's this uh, anecdote about Elliot Smith who would always when recording was like notoriously obsessive and would print the thing to tape every mix and then put it in the Walkman and walk around the city, walk around the block um, and listen to it the way people were going to hear it out in the world. Um, my dad would do this in the nineties. They would like put the thing on tape and then go out. It was the truck test. If it yeah. doesn't sound good in a truck, it doesn't sound good. 
And so they would go out and play it in the truck. That's how people were going to hear it back in the days when you had a cassette player in the car. Um, yeah, we definitely like you, did that. At, like in any of the bands I've been in, we've done like the car test. It's like, who has the shittiest speakers? Like go and burn a CD and mm-hmm. play it in there. And it's like, if it, you know, if the mix doesn't sound good there, like even when I'm sending mix back, I still burn a CD. You know, and it's like, I'm going to hear what it sounds like here because it's like you have it's like space speakers and, you know, your mixing studio. It's like, so I need to know like what this sounds like in a 1992 Chevy Lumina, you know, right. like the, the car test are walking around with the, you know, Walkman like is super important. Like, you know, I hope people are, I almost thought more people were doing it, but if you're saying that you feel like it's like a thing of a bygone era. Well, I, I just like, um, I think that it's people still do it. Like we car test everything, you know, mm-hmm. we do it on headphones, Bluetooth speaker, AirPods. but the idea he would, Elliot Smith would like change one thing in the mix and then print it and listen to it and then change <laughs> one more thing in the mix and print it and do it and had to know how it sounded every single time. And I think that what's cool about, you know, any of these people I'm talking about, granddaddy, the Wrens, Elliot Smith, um, they know they knew what like what the record was supposed to be in some way, and they really had to make sure that you were going to hear it the way that they intended it. Um, yeah, people really misunderstand. I think Elliot Smith's thing because he gets so many people come to know him through the more acoustic albums, but he was like deeply obsessive about recording. And had a real plan and direction for like what he wanted you to hear when you listened. And I think they can drive you crazy. I think it can make you fully insane to try and figure out what other people are going to hear when they listen to it and how to fix it so that they can hear what you're trying to get them to hear. Um, but I think it's clearly possible. It just might ruin your life. <laughs> yeah. So I guess like as I. I want to change gears for a second because, all right, so you have a new record coming out and that's the reason people come on podcast, you know? Uh, so, so <laughs> what I want to ask though is, do you feel like, is there any sort of way that this record influences like how you approach playing guitar and camp trash or like as a songwriter now, as someone in a band, like how does this record influence you? There's a lot of ways that like, I have a lot of romantic ideas about playing guitar from stuff like this record that um, my buddy Kyle Hoffer, who we've recorded everything with so far, does not share. You know, Kyle does like things to be um, correct, like in in tune and all there. And, and I think that our stuff is better for Kyle being a part of it. He really is a big part of the sound of the EP and of the LP. Um, so a smart guy with a real clear sonic vision. But I think that this record really makes me believe that there are the pieces of what you had, you collected along the way of writing the songs might matter in the end. It might be like the key that really pulls things together. Um, there are a couple places in the album where I would just have Kyle let me do it a couple times um, badly on purpose to, to see if like what we could get out of it was going to communicate the emotion I was looking for. I wanted to try playing stuff, not as clean or tidy. Um, and that happens a little bit on the record, but the record's pretty, 
um, is a little, it's, it's cleaner. It's like, it's, we're like a nineties influenced, like pop rock, indie rock thing. And, and it isn't super, um, overblown or fucked up. It's, I, I'm, I'm happy with how it sounds. Um, but there was mistakes we made that I kind of like folded into the songs. Um, Pete, like guitar parts that were off that felt good when we heard it back. And so we just like rewrote the part to include that. Um, I just kind of trusting that the magic of writing the thing in the studio together, we were all there and the energy was all together. We write everything remote. We, I live in Portland. Most of the band, the band lived in Florida. Now the band lives in New York, Baltimore and Florida. Um, so we're all spread out. So it was this moment. We had a couple of days at the beginning where we could just play the songs together in a room and whatever we came up with in those couple of days, we went with, cause I was like, this is, even if this is like, not a good idea we have to trust like that the energy here is something that's important and that it will translate on the record somehow even if it's not a technically better idea um but i think it was more actually like lyrics to stuff i think that sonically we did a little bit less um using scraps and pieces but lyrics um the last song on the album uh, Brian and I, the singer Brian and I both, um, pulled back lyrics that we could, we couldn't quite end the song. The song wasn't quite done. Um, it's one that Brian had wrote, had written pretty much all on his own and, and brought to me. I was like, that's a great song. It's a perfect song. I'm not going to mess with it. I don't want to, to mess up what I think is working here, but we, we weren't quite done. It didn't, it didn't conclude conclusively enough um it just felt like it faded off and so we were trying to pull together a couple lyric ideas to kind of tie it together at the end and brian dug up a lyric of mine that we cut from another song and uh the song potamino uh on the ep was a song that brian wrote a long time ago that I loved that he didn't. And then Levi, the bass player recorded a cover of it, like a version of it. And Brian heard that and was like, okay, I like the song again. Uh, but Levi misheard one of the big lyrics in the song and changed it. And Brian just decided that's the new lyric. I like that better. Um, but I think one of the last lyrics on the album is the original Potamina lyric, the one before Levi re recorded it before we messed it up and rewrote it. Um, so yeah, we, we pulled back the bits and pieces that we've been working with for a long time lyrically and kind of stitched them together at the end, uh, hoping that like the, the pieces that we've thrown away in the, during the process ended up, um, hoping they will be important in the end. Yeah. Let me see if I can figure out how to, uh, ask these questions that I have. Sometimes I write little notes down, but they're not really questions. They're just little notes. So I'm like... <laughs> I don't really know how to like bring that into conversation. So I wrote the words Twitter. When did band form and Christian rock? <laughs> so, yeah, so, I could probably do these all at once. Okay. Uh let's start with uh since we're already talking about camp when I guess when did when did band form? Um band formed <laughs> technically the end of twenty nineteen is when the band with the current lineup played our first show with Worst Party Ever. Um, it was the 
farewell show for our first band we had together with a different drummer called French of America. And then it was the first Camp Trash show. So it was a, a farewell show and a first show in the same night. And um, that was when we played the set and we just had such a good time. I told Brian afterward, I was like, I think we should just record what we have. Like, I don't know, even, even if it's just for us, like we played together for a long time and we shouldn't just keep on keeping on without taking a moment to kind of like, like just commemorate, like we're having a great time playing music together. I don't think we should lose it. I think we should just like at least mark it in time somehow. Um, Brian and the bass player, my brother Levi and I have been playing together for like, oh, over 10 years now, over 12 years, over a long time. Since Brian and I were in high school, we started playing music together in high school um, as part of like a youth group Christian music band. And uh, then when I was in college, uh, Brian and I started a band, Friendship America with Levi and um, our friend Anthony on drums. And we were just like a, a band that existed to play local shows. Whenever I was home, we'd play with, um, uh, Cameron from the band Farseek had other bands down there. Betterment was one of those bands. Um, we would play with Andy from Worst Party Ever, who grew up in the same area. And uh, we just played in people's garages and driveways and at lousy bars and like wherever we could, but we didn't really record anything. I think there's like a, a really rough demo somewhere on Bandcamp still. Um, but it was just like to play music together. And it was after the show in 2019 that I was like, I like these songs a lot and I don't want to just keep on going without taking a moment to like, just preserve them somehow. Um, Brian and I had been playing these songs together for about like three or four years at that point. There's like a video of us playing like a, an acoustic show as Camp Trash on YouTube from like 2016. Um, when I briefly lived in Florida before moving to Portland. Um, but we just didn't really ever sit down to really make a thing of it. We just sort of, we, were, we would write songs back and forth via voice memos and email and sending scraps to each other and kind of building on each other's ideas. And uh, sometimes some songs of Brian's, I just add leads to. Um, like Sleepyhead is that way. It's just a song where I added leads to an existing song Brian had written. And there are some songs that like Bobby that are much more like half and half where we kind of constructed the song together. Brian would write the verses, I'd write the chorus, or we'd literally go like a uh, pursuit, the new song that we, the most recent single from the album is literally, I think down the middle, Brian does the first verse and the first half of the chorus. And I do the second half of the chorus and the second verse or something like that. It's, um, how the songs are put together varies a lot, but Brian and I do it all together. Um, but it was in the beginning of 2020, we finally just went to the studio and said, what we have, we should just lock it in. And from there, once we had the songs, it was pandemic. There was nothing to do. We weren't going anywhere. It was, we were in a pretty severe lockdown at the beginning of 2020 and had nothing to do. So I just started sending the songs to people. And was like, I wonder, now that we've done this, I actually like the songs a lot. I actually am really happy with the quality of recording Kyle got. I think that we have something cool here. And it would. we were originally just going to release it on Bandcamp ourselves. I think Joey was going to do a cassette tape and that was going to be it. 
Um, but Keith from Kind of Lucky Stars was kind enough to take a listen. And he said, I like it. And uh, he was just going to do a cassette tape, but he said, I think they're good songs and I think we should put them on vinyl. Um, and that was really cool of him to just believe in us to invest money in a band that no one had ever heard before or care about. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's it's hard to tell like what shape the band takes because we're all in different places now. But we really, really um, are having a good time. <laughs> yeah like we're really we're just really happy to be here yeah i guess it, what's interesting about it so it's just basically fully formed completely throughout the pandemic like i mean we'll have like so many of those bands like you know as time moves forward that like you know military gun is an example you mm -hmm. know but it's interesting do you feel like uh not being in the same place does it help or hurt i mean from everything you told me i guess it helps but yeah. um, I don't, I would rather do it the other way. I would much rather get in a room and write with the band. Um, this is the way we do it right now is out of necessity. But mm -hmm. um, I've written so closely with Brian for so long that it, it doesn't really matter. It is really just this, uh, just a way that we communicate and have for our whole lives. Um, I, I send Brian lyric ideas and he'll send it back to me kind of sung in the melody I was imagining. It just feels very much like we're, we're, we're on the same wavelength as we do things and we um, pick up whatever the other person sets down. And so I think that's like a really rare special thing. And I, I'm not a great songwriter or a great guitar player. I honestly don't think that I would do this if it weren't, for like having like a songwriting partner, like someone whose vision I really love and care about and someone who I enjoy working with, like I work, like enjoy working with Brian. Um, the pandemic helped us in that it made everybody slow down and just hang out online. I think a lot of people got on Twitter in 2019, 2020, because there wasn't shit else to do. Um, and it allowed us to kind of build an audience by just goofing off online and joking with people and hanging out. And in a world where we weren't going to be able to tour at that time anyway, but nobody was touring. Everybody was just hanging out online and we were able to kind of make enough noise to let, get people to hear what we were doing without having to be on the road. Cause at that time we couldn't have been, um, it just gave us enough time and space to make people aware of what we were doing. And, uh, I don't know ultimately if we write better in the same room or via draft sent back and forth. Um, but I think that Camp Trash exists as long as Brian and I are still writing songs together that way. Um, that's the only way Camp Trash can exist. So I guess the other, then the other two questions were Twitter and uh, Christian Rock. But I, I saw... Uh, with doing my research on you, you went to Liberty University. And the other I question did. yeah, I'll ask is, like, what type of denomination did you grow up in? Um, that's a great question. You're clearly from the South. Yeah. Um, it's, I grew up, so the long story short is uh, Brian and I both grew up in church, met in church stuff, and are no longer church people. Mm -hmm. um, I specifically grew up Baptist. I would have grown up, my, my parents would have like 
talk said non-denominational, which for any true Southern Christian culture heads are aware non-denominational is just different Baptist, which is a yeah. slightly different kind of Baptist. Um, it's not more liturgical really. It's not, but I grew up going to Wesleyan churches and then um, Baptist churches and non-denominational churches. Uh, and Florida is not the South culturally, but their Baptistism feels pretty Southern. And mm-hmm. it was, it's, it was a pretty conservative culture. Um, not oppressively so, but definitely a place where I think I was taught a lot of things that I no longer believe. Um, and at the very least was taught not to care about specific issues or specific kinds of pain people went through um, because it was their fault or because it was not something I had to worry about. Um, And that ultimately is what moved me away from it. But I went to Liberty University um, because as a teenager, I kind of really believed in what my parents believed and they're good people. And I still think they're good Mm -hmm. people. And I still think that they are sincere in their beliefs and, I believe what they believed and I had people I knew that went there and it was kind of the only Christian school that wasn't kind of a terrifying nightmare. Um, and it, Liberty became a terrifying nightmare but at the time. It was the most normal, it was the most normal Christian school. There were rules, there was a curfew um, and it was clearly conservative, but it 10 years yeah. ago, it was not, um, it was not conservative like you see it now. It wasn't, it wouldn't have been something where you would have thought of it as like a Trump school. It was just Christian. It was just kind of Baptist and backwoods and it was a little bit hokey, but um, I liked the people I went to school there with. I met my, my partner there and she and I have enjoyed our time there and the, and the friends we made. But um, the more time you spend in it, the more you really feel like people are going out of their way to write off the experiences of others in order to kind of justify feeling the way they do about things or reinforcing their own beliefs about things. And there was uh, a time when I just couldn't really do that anymore. Um, But I also got, free grad school I was there in exchange for teaching. So um appreciate what I got out of it. Uh, yeah. Wouldn't just yeah. wouldn't go back in this current universe. No, I feel you on that because it's like there's also, I feel like when people are raised in uh, Christianity, there's something I feel like I sense out of them that I, I feel like I know. And then oftentimes I don't know until they tell me, but I'm like, oh, that was what it was. You know, because I was raised uh, Pentecostal. Really, I was raised mm-hmm. apostolic, but some of that doesn't really mean anything to people. Uh, and so it was very conservative, you know, very like how you dress, like, you know, women don't cut their hair and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, kind of you know, these are things you experience in the South, you know. So I understand that way yeah. of thinking. And kind of like when you get to a point, even when I explain stories to people, it's like I even at my age, so many years removed, it's like, it's just the way you were raised, you know? So it's like, you don't really think about it being strange. You'll tell someone a story and they'll be like, wait, what? 
you know, and you, that's just the life you led, you know, like that's how a lot of it was. And there's certain things where I'm like, oh, well, that was totally fucked up. But there's other things that's just still in my head somewhere until I tell the story. That's how I was raised, you know? So, so I'm saying I understand like that kind of feeling and moving away. Yeah. Brian and I started playing together in like a youth group band that would play it would, in Florida. It's very Pentecostal. It's crazy Pentecostal in Florida. And so we were tangentially involved in a lot of those youth groups and things. And we would play this worship night on Fridays that would go for like three, four hours sometimes. Um, you know, we'd have the, the flags, uh, the ribbons, the blowing the shofar, which is, I've always felt weird about why Pentecostal groups blow the ram's horn. Cause it's, it's like a we specifically didn't, we Jewish didn't. thing. Yeah, well, since I was raised actually apostolic, we didn't do a lot of those things because those were kind of viewed as like, uh, I like iconography. Like they tried to strip yeah. away all that stuff because those became idols, um, and so they would. That's almost the only difference. It's like uh, apostolics were like uh, Pentecostals are putting too many like idols. Is really the thing they'll yeah. say, and so they stripped all that got away. A ton of knickknacks and accessories. <laughs> yes. Love. Yeah, apostolics stripped that away, but went with the like you know speaking in tongues and so on, translating yeah. the speaking in tongues and running around the church and you know kind of yes. going to hell, we, hellfire kind of stuff. You know, yeah, we all that super... still there. We were super in the midst of all that, and I think that Brian was always uncomfortable with it. Brian grew up Catholic, grew up Irish Catholic in like Michigan. It wasn't Brian. Brian had no vocabulary for what was happening, and and he was just there because we were there. And he's an easygoing guy, and he was like, "Sure, yeah, I'll come along." Um, but I think Brian the whole time was like a little, little <laughs> wigged out by the how wacky it got, but. Um, yeah, the Brian. One of the time, first times Brian and I hung out was this camp at a um, like this charismatic youth services worship camp where it was just chaos. It was just speaking in tongues and people rolling on the ground. And then at some point, I look over and the bass player is standing next to me, you know, worshiping. And I was like, "Shouldn't you be playing bass?" And he goes, "Hey, man, you play bass." I was like, I don't know how to play bass. He's like, just go up there. You'll get it. And so I learned to play bass on accident, just in the middle of this worship service. I think I couldn't play bass at all. I was just like trying to thump along. And the guitar player was like whispering instructions to me as we played. But it was a very freaked out, weird, weird world we were all inhabiting. And uh, I don't know. I don't know what, like how that plays into brian and i's music or our songwriting or anything but i just remember it was truly a a very emotional and highly charged time where we were surrounded by people who were super passionate and really sincere and really cool and also seemingly insane just yeah. so over the top and wild and um yeah, we really kind of bonded together. Like, cause also you play these worship services and they would go until like the spirit stopped moving or whatever. So it'd be two, three hours. And we only knew like 15 songs. We had just learned to play our instruments. So we would be like the worship leader guy would be teaching us songs on stage as we played, just trying to keep it going. Someone would be like, Hey, I gotta go to the bathroom and they would leave stage and you would just have to try and cover for them. And, 
um, yeah, religion in Florida seems like all the other religions from the the Bible Belt in the South got shaken out and all the change fell into Florida. And it's a really weird mix of denominations and religious stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've kept you long enough and I think this is uh, definitely, a, you know, I love the way we're going out on it. But before I do let you go, uh, where can people find you online? And uh, I guess we didn't say what the name of your new record is. And when's that come out? Um, the name of the record is The Long Way, The Slow Way. It uh, comes out July 1st on Kind of Lucky Stars Records. Um, you can pre-order it now, which will help convince Keith that the money he sunk into us was worth it. Um, we're proud of it. We had a lot of fun making it. Uh, like we said, recorded and produced and engineered and everything by our friend Kyle in Orlando. And... Um, the band is at camp underscore trash on Twitter and camp trash FL on Instagram. And I'm on Twitter at Franzia mom, which was a joke name that I made while I was having a Franzia phase in undergrad. And unfortunately I now have to live with forever. <laughs> um, and let me see if I can ask this right. Uh, because I feel like we've had a lovely conversation, um, uh, what do you th do you think people are surprised when they meet you in person versus like the Keegan online Twitter personality? I have heard a lot of versions of this and experienced a lot of these conversations and I think it's important for I always just try and tell people like of course the Twitter thing is like a bit like nobody is like only talking about their opinions about music all the time or whatever. I'm not like this person who's just talking about his opinions about music 24 seven in real life. I got this website in order to be able to air out all the things that don't make sense to talk about with your friends or with your wife at the dinner table or whatever. Um, but I hope that like, as I've gotten older, I've also become less of a dick. Like, I think that there was a time when I was like, probably pretty, like, I think everybody might've had a phase that were kind of snappy or a little bit dismissive or argumentative on the internet. And it's something that I hope everyone grows out of. And I think I certainly have, it was just, but you know, you spend a lot of time online, you sort of grow up um, and maybe visibly kind of mature and find new ways of being, um, that you might not have always had access to, but I do, I had someone come to me on tour and say, it's nice to meet you. Um, we have a shared friend, Kevin, um, my buddy, Kevin, who runs top shelf records. We go running once in a while here. She was like, he's told me about you. He said, don't worry. He's great. He's nothing like his Twitter presence. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I don't think it's that, I don't think it's that bad. Uh, it also is a thing where it feeds into itself now where people are just like another hot take and it'll be me being like Doritos are delicious. Like I just say boring opinions in an annoying way. And people are like, he's a hot take machine. I don't, I just, I think I'm just saying regular opinions in a slightly annoying way. 
Yeah, I feel like if I said, uh, there's like things that you say in regular life that I, I just, yeah, I just do these to my wife all the time, you know? And so you're saying like, that's a thing that you can do online. So maybe that you don't torture your partner with these things. Yeah, no, <laughs> there's, there's no way that my wife wants to hear why I think that Murray Street is better than Washing Machine by Sonic Youth. Like I've <laughs> I've thought about it. I've 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 gone one way. I've gone going back the other way. But this is what I think about all day long. Like I don't play music because I'm uh, the best at it and gonna go super super far in my life. I play music because I fucking love it. I really fucking love it. And what I like about the internet is that um, I'm not like an internet person. I was I was a forum guy as a kid. But really, I, I use Twitter like on my phone, and that's pretty much it. I'm not on other social medias a lot, or it was just a place where I could t I, I could find people that had similar interests. One of my best friends in Portland, Mo Troper, brilliant musician, wonderful human, very sweet and kind person. Um, I got originally got to know on Twitter because he just like understood what I was saying about like guitar music and like had similar thoughts on it and, and cared about the same kinds of things. And I think that actually a lot of the friends that I've made off Twitter have been people that I consider very good friend, like close friends now for years because um, we bonded over things that both matter a lot to us. And I think that's a cool phenomenon where you can find people who you kind of uh, vibrate with on a, on a spiritual level. Uh, in a way that you might not always in real life. Welcome back. Thanks again to Keegan for coming on the pod. Please check out the new Camp Trash album, out now on vinyl and streaming. Once again, please check out your local abortion access funds. I would recommend donationsforabortion.com. That's donations, the number four, abortion.com. Next week on the pod, we're talking with Derek Zanetti of the Homeless Gospel Choir about Beach Boys' 1967 album, Smiley Smile. So tune in next time. Once again, check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at spinningoutpod. Lastly, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you do that sort of thing. Reviews definitely help. And just simply you know, share the episodes, tell a friend. Those things help as well. Thanks as always to Sarah Blumenthal for editing the pod and Pretty Maddie for the theme. Okay, see you next week. <laughs>